You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 3, and then we will pray together before we begin. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is before Your Word that we bow. We thank You that we have the truth of God in our language before us that we might read and that we might understand and we pray that You would bless us with Your presence and Your power and Your teaching to that end that we might have the grace not only to understand Your Word, but we are dependent upon You for that sanctifying grace even to obey it. And so we call out to You this morning before we begin our study with humble hearts, with thankful hearts, and with expectant hearts that we might see what You have in this Your Word for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started last week in Philippians chapter 3 looking at this warning that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Philippi concerning false teachers and false teachings and men who were dangerous and whose doctrines were dangerous and they were creeping into the church, they were coming into the church, they were even outside of the church and I think that the warning is given uh, concerning these men not that they were already inside the church and had, had wrought destruction in the church but I think that they were outside the church and the Apostle Paul is simply saying beware. And we noted last week that the tone of Philippians chapter 3 is way different than the tone of Philippians chapter 2. This warning is a very serious warning, a very solemn warning, a very uh, curt, a very short, uh, it's an arresting warning. It's designed to sort of catch our attention and cause us to sit up and take notice. And it reminds us of a danger that has always been present in churches, a danger that the people of God have always faced, not just since Pentecost with the church, but even the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, it's a danger that the people of God have always faced, and it's it's this. 
that one of the strategies of Satan is to inject into the people of God his people and to get the people of God to mingle with idolaters and pagans and blasphemers in the church. It is far more insidious, far more secret, far more subtle as Satan begins to sow his people amongst God's people for the sake of eliminating the testimony of a church, destroying the doctrine of a church, perverting sound doctrine, and destroying and leading people's souls away from the truth. Jesus warned about it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And in the same passage, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warned, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into my kingdom. There are going to be many, not just a couple, one or two or three. There are going to be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name and preach in Your name and do all of these things in Your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from Me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. It's those same people that Paul is warning the church in Philippi about in Philippians chapter 3. Later on, Jesus went on to tell a parable that illustrated this truth about a man who went out in his field. He sowed uh, wheat. He sowed wheat seeds out in his field, and then his enemy, while he slept, came in and sowed tear seeds out there. And then when they sprang up, the wheat and the tear came up together. And then the laborers said, well, should we pull up the tares? And the master said, no, my enemy has done this. Just let them grow up together. And at the end of the harvest, then we'll separate the wheat from the tares. Lest in pulling up the tares, you uproot good wheat as well. That was a parable like unto the kingdom of heaven. And that's the way it has been for 2,000 years. Satan comes in to churches, to the true people of God, and he sows their people false teachers with false doctrines, and they come into the church, they look like sheep, they smell like sheep, they sound like sheep, they act like sheep, they imitate the sheep, they know what words to use so that the sheep will trust them, and then they get into be, be the chairs of departments and seminaries, and they take pulpits, and they have television ministries, and they publish newsletters, and they write books, and they get these positions of influence and power from which they can peddle their pernicious poison. It's a very real danger. And the most scathing, the most bitter, the most abrasive and abusive language in all of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is reserved for those men who willingly twist and distort the truth of God to their own destruction. Paul calls them false brethren in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of the same people that he's speaking of in Philippians chapter 3. In the book of Acts chapter 20, he was warned the Ephesian elders, men from among your own selves will rise up and they will speak perverse things and they will draw away disciples after themselves. So beware. And that's exactly what happened. Men in the church in Ephesus did rise up speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after themselves. Hymenaeus and Alexander were two of those men and Paul names them in 1 Timothy chapter 1, writing to the church in Ephesus that he had warned only five or six years prior He writes to the church there. He had dropped Timothy off and he says to Timothy, here is what I want you to do with these men. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, 
wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 4, Paul warned Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have teachers who will tickle their ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will do just that. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Paul says there are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And Paul says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. They are disobedient. They are worthless for any good deed. Scathing language, is it not? Second Peter was written to address false teachers, and Peter says false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The book of Jude, and these are chilling words, Jude chapter 4, Jude says certain persons, listen, have crept in unnoticed. Man, that just sends chills down my spine. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. False teachers don't come into the church wearing a neon sign around their neck that says, beware, I'm a wolf. They don't come into the church and announce their first Sunday, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing and I'm here to ravage your flock. When is the membership class? How do I become an elder? They don't do that. They creep in unnoticed. That's why Paul said to the Ephesian elders, there are men outside who will prey upon you and there are men from your own number who will rise up and they will speak perverse things. The New Testament is so filled with warnings concerning error, falsehood, false doctrine, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, that we are completely without excuse if we ignore their warnings. And if we do ignore their warnings, then our deception and our destruction and our downfall is nobody's fault but our own. you got to beware. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He's warning the church in Philippi about this very real danger of these men who are trying to creep in unnoticed and bring with them these destructive heresies, these doctrines of demons, teaching things about the law that they should not teach, because as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, they're ignorant and they're stupid and they don't know either what they teach or what they're saying. They don't even know how to use the law rightly. They come in and they spread their pernicious doctrines through the church, leading people astray, leading people into bondage. It's a serious warning, is it not? So we ought to set up and take heed, because this situation about false teachers is not something that vanished at the end of the apostolic age. This is not warnings for a bygone era. This is something that we have to pay attention to through the whole church age. And as long as the people of God exist, Satan will sow his tares, Satan will bring his sheep in, his wolves in sheep's clothing in, he will bring in the fake and he puts them right next to the true so that you can hardly tell the difference. And as you read these passages in the New Testament and you hear what some of these men and women saying on Christian radio and Christian television, it's like they're quoting what the apostles said that these false teachers would say. And so we pay attention, or we, we, we fail to pay attention only at our own peril. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3. We saw last week that the apostle Paul Described for us their character, their conduct, and their creed. What was their character? 
Beware of the dogs. That's not a compliment. It's not a pet that he's talking about. He's talking about these vile, unclean, scavengerous beasts who fed on uh, corpses and carcasses out in the valleys and inside the cities. They were unclean. Nobody wanted to touch them. Nobody wanted dogs. It was the worst epithet, one of the worst epithets that Paul could have labeled these men with. One of the worst, most vile things he could have said. Unless he called him a cat. That would be worse than calling him a dog. But then the false teachers would have said, hey, you can call us a dog all day long, but you cross the line, you start calling us cats. It is one of the most vile things that Paul could have called these men, to call them kunas, dogs. Second, he says, beware of the evil workers. These are men who, whose energetic missionary activity and following him from city to city and promoting circumcision and promoting the law and promoting the keeping of all the Old Testament dietary and Mosaic codes They brought people into bondage, and so what they accomplished, even though their motives may have been good, what they accomplished was evil, and they were very energetic in doing it. And third, Paul says, beware of the false circumcision. Beware of these men who are just mutilators. They're they're just lacerators of the flesh. They just cut the flesh. That's all they do. They're mutilators. They're the false circumcision. That's their creed. What was their character? Dogs. What was their conduct? Evil workers. What was their creed? Unless a man be circumcised and keep the law of Moses... He cannot be saved. That was their creed. That was their belief. That was their doctrine. And so they would creep into Gentile churches and they would say, hey, all you Gentile men, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. We're not going to have ham at our Easter morning breakfast next week because that's unclean. You need to keep all the dietary laws. And they had all of these systems of righteousness that they imposed upon the people of God. Paul says that's what these men are. They're dogs. They're evil workers and they're false circumcision. Now to contrast that in verse 3, and that's all the farther we're going to get this morning, to contrast with that in verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives us three marks of a genuine believer. And he says, but we are the true circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who place no confidence in the flesh. There are three qualities there, three marks of a genuine believer that contrast them with these false teachers. But before we get into those three marks, we have to answer this question, When the Apostle Paul says, we are the true circumcision, what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, we are the true circumcision? Is he talking about just himself, or just the other apostles, or just he and Timothy and whoever was with him in Rome? Or is he talking about all Christians being the true circumcision? And what does he mean by true circumcision? Do you consider yourself part of the true circumcision? You ever use that term in announcing who you are? Hey, I'm Jim, I'm part of the true circumcision. Welcome, brother. Do you belong to the true circumcision? That's a little awkward, is it not? Not something that you probably said to each other as you walked in the door today and greeted each other. I hope something you probably won't say too often, even after today. But it's it's kind of an awkward phrase. It's an awkward description. What does Paul mean by that? We are the true circumcision. It's obviously a contrast to the false circumcision that he mentions in verse 2. Can you see that? Beware of the katatome. We talked about that word last week. It just meant lacerators of the flesh. Kata meant down and Tomei meant to cut. And that was not true circumcision. True circumcision in the New Testament is all, Paul always used, and New Testament writers always used the word paratome. A para around cut Tomei. To cut around was to circumcise. So true circumcision, the true biblical circumcision was paratome. But when Paul sort of with a twist of a phrase and a, a word play here and a very derogatory word play towards these men calls them the katatome. He's just calling them, they're just cutters. They're just mutilators. It is people who lacerate the flesh. And so he's obviously contrasting 
we who belong to the true circumcision with those men who just concised people, just cut people. So it's an obvious contrast. But beyond that, you had to understand what the whole purpose of circumcision was. I covered this last week in more detail. I'm just going to briefly remind you this week so that you can make sense of what Paul means by true circumcision. Circumcision was a right that was given to Abraham, not for the purpose of making Abraham righteous, not for the purpose of sanctifying Abraham, not to fill Abraham with the Spirit, not to make him better in the eyes of God. It was given as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and his physical offspring, the Jews. It was never intended for Gentiles. It was never intended for the church age. It was intended to be a mark in the flesh of what was supposed to be an inward reality. What God was after was the circumcised heart. The heart that was cut before God. The heart that belonged to God. So that those who had the circumcision in their flesh were reminded every time they saw that mark in the flesh that their heart was to be right and marked before God. Because God is never interested just in the outward fleshly display or an outward ritual. He's always after the heart. But by Paul's time, circumcision had become a symbol that was totally bereft of any of its spiritual significance. All it was was a marking in the flesh, and the people in those days, contrary to Genesis when it was given to Abraham, those people saw their circumcision as something that gained them status in the sight of God, and it was never intended to be that. It was never intended to be something by which people might see themselves as being righteous. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm circumcised, so I'm righteous. I'm right in the sight of God. I'm just... I'm going to heaven because I have a mark in my flesh. That was really to abuse and to twist and distort the whole purpose and the whole meaning of circumcision. It was never intended to be just an outward thing in which people place their confidence. It was intended to be an outward mark in the flesh, which indicated the status of the heart. But by Paul's day, they marked their flesh and they said, therefore we are the people of God because we belong to the circumcision. We've had the ceremony. We've had the cutting. We're done with that. So therefore we are righteous. But circumcision was given to Abraham long after he was accounted as righteous in God's sight. So it can't make one righteous. So when Paul says, beware of the katatome because we are the paratome. Beware of the false circumcision because we are the true circumcision. And by that he is not referring just to Jewish Christians. By true circumcision, the Apostle Paul is referring to all of you here, male and female. You all are the true circumcision. Why? Because whether you're circumcised in the flesh or not, is irrelevant in the New Covenant. It's not mandatory upon Christians. It's not required for sanctification. It's not required once you become a believer in order to really be pure and holy in God's sight. It's nothing that the Bible requires for you to do to males that are born in your house. It is no longer a sign of any covenant that pertains or applies to you in any way whatsoever. You are the true circumcision in the sense not that you have a mark on your outward flesh, but that your heart belongs to God. So you are, you are included in the blessings of Abraham, not because of a mark in your flesh, but by faith. The same way Abraham was made righteous, you are made righteous. It's not circumcision that makes you righteous. It's your faith that makes you righteous, just like Abraham. So you belong to the people of God, the true circumcision, regardless of outward marks in your flesh, male or female, doesn't matter. If your heart has responded in obedient faith to Jesus Christ, you are the true circumcision. You are the true people of God. That's what Paul's getting at. They are not the true people of God. Mark in the flesh notwithstanding, we, he says, in Christ, are the true people of God. And so there are three things that mark us, and that's the rest of our passage. 
Number one, we worship God in the Spirit. Number two, we boast in Christ Jesus. And number three, we place no confidence in the flesh. Let's deal with each one of those. First of all, we worship God in the Spirit, or we worship in the Spirit of God. Worship is the word that Paul uses for worship was a word that was used of any sort of service uh, rendered to a deity. Any time you worshipped or served a deity, and Paul here obviously applies it to our God, the true God, Anytime you offered service to him in whatever way it was, it was determined, it was called worship. It's a very general term. It refers to praying, it refers to praising, it refers to singing, it refers to reading, it refers to anything that is offered to God as by way of worship. That is where we worship God in the Spirit and that our worship is not just a matter of singing and praising. Now I ask you this question. If I were to ask you to define worship for me, how would you define it? You ever stop just long enough to think, what is worship? How, how do I define that? Is it singing? You say, well, I, it's indispensable. I, I can't worship if I'm not singing. Is it praising? Is it raising your hands? Is it an emotion that you feel? You walk away from here today and you say, I, I didn't worship today. Well, why not? Well, I didn't get those, you know, the quiver in my liver and the goose, the Holy Spirit bumps down my arms. I didn't get that sensation. So I didn't worship today. Really? So you equate worship with the same feeling I get when I go on a roller coaster? Is that what worship is to you? Is it an emotion that you feel? Or is it something that you come here to observe others do every Sunday morning for about 20 minutes? Or do you think that worship is what you do here? What is it to you? For the Christian in the New Covenant, do you know what worship is? It is everything you do to the glory of God. Praying, preaching, singing, teaching, serving, the Lord's Supper, reading your Bible, going to work, digging the ditch, being a plumber, being an electrician, being an engineer, being a pilot, being a homemaker, being a housewife, being a mother, being a father. Everything you do, your whole life, if you do all to the glory of God, it is all an act of worship. It's not a matter of just physical things that you do. It's not a matter of just functions that you do. It's not something you schedule to do. It is something that you always do because you always offer to God spiritual sacrifices. Continually. So worship is everything that you do. Further, the Apostle Paul says, we worship in the Spirit of God. That is the realm in which we worship. We don't worship in the flesh. There's an obvious contrast. We don't worship just in the flesh. We don't worship by just doing these things. We worship, and our worship is offered in the Spirit of God. Now, that means that those who don't have the Spirit of God cannot worship. Do you understand that? Those who do not have the Spirit of God cannot worship. They can sit right next to you during one of our services, and they can sing all the right songs. They can get emotional. They can raise their hands. They can say amen at the right time. They can listen to the sermon. They can laugh at the appropriate times of the jokes. They can close in prayer. They can do all of the functions, follow along in the Bible. But if they do not have the Spirit of God because they're not born again by the Spirit of God, they have not worshipped. All they have done is gone through the external rote of performing and doing things that everybody else is doing. You have worshipped if you've worshipped in the Spirit, but the person who has not the Spirit of God has not worshipped God because God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So it's the realm in which we worship. That means that all of our prayers and all of our singing and all of our sacrifices and everything we do is curried from here to heaven by the Spirit of God. And by the way, that is what makes it acceptable in the sight of God. 
There's nothing about what we do here as a group of people on a Sunday morning, and there's nothing about anything else you do that is acceptable to God in and of itself. It is because it is offered in the Spirit, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and that it is curried from earth to heaven by the Spirit of God and sanctified by Him and offered in accordance with Him. That's what makes it acceptable. So worship is that which is prompted by the Spirit of God, created in the heart of the child of God by the Spirit of God, uttered in the Spirit of God, and lifted to heaven by the Spirit of God. Because if it's not in the Spirit, it doesn't get any farther than the top of the ceiling, as far as God is concerned. So we worship God in the Spirit. Now that contrasts it with the Judaizers, doesn't it? These men who worshipped in the flesh, because you could go into... You could go into Jerusalem, you could go to the temple, and you could see people offering sacrifices. They would be offering money. They would be singing. They would be clapping. They would be waving palm branches. They would be doing all of the things that was part of the worship in the temple in Jerusalem, day after day after day, week after week after week, wearing their long robes and uttering the right prayers and standing by the walls and doing all of the things to be seen by men, offering their gifts and everything, and they're burning their incense and bringing all of their stuff into the temple. And all of that activity, the Apostle Paul says, none of it is worship. Isn't that amazing? None of that is worship. That was all a false system that had been so corrupted by Jesus' day that it was no longer even considered worship. That is why Jesus went into the temple and He said, you turn my Father's house into a den of thieves because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And the, the glory that you do give to me and the things that you do do for me, you just learn by rote. It's just traditions of men. And the same thing is true of us if we come here on a Sunday morning and our hearts are far from the Lord and we come here and we're in rebellion and we're in sin and we're doing this and things are not right and we know that we're not walking in truth and integrity and holiness and righteousness and then we offer to God our songs. All it is is drawing near to Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. As the true circumcision, our hearts are before Him. He sees them, He knows them, and He wants us to offer them to Him so that our worship in the Spirit is offered up from pure hearts, not hearts that are far from Him. Paul says the number one mark of a true believer is that we worship in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The second mark, we boast in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory that is boast in Christ Jesus. The word glory or boast there is a word that meant to to, uh, rejoice boastingly or to uh, boast rejoicingly in something that you were most proud of. Uh, it's a favorite word of the Apostle Paul's. Of the 37 times that it's used in the New Testament, Paul uses them 35 times. He talks about boasting all of the time. Now, sometimes it is boasting is evil and sinful and wicked, but I ask you, is all boasting sin? Is all boasting sin? No. Do you know that we're commanded to boast? Did you know that? The real issue then is not whether or not I'm boasting. The real issue is, what am I boasting of? Who am I boasting of and why am I boasting? Because not all boasting is sin. But much boasting is sin. In fact, any boasting that is not in the Lord is sin. And so as the Apostle Paul talks about boasting, he has in mind a few Old Testament references and let me give them to you. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 34, verse 2, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me and understands me and that I am a God exercising loving kindness. Let not the rich man boast in his riches or the mighty man boast in his might. But if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord our God. So Paul says, I boast and I boast in the Lord. Who are the true circumcision? Who are the true believers? You know who the true believers are? 
They are the people who when they boast, they boast about Christ, not themselves. Nothing that I do. Now the Judaizers and these men who were creeping into the church and trying to bring in their destructive doctrines, what did they boast about? They boasted about the fact that they were Jews. We're Abraham's descendants. We've been circumcised. We keep the Sabbath. We have the ceremony. We got the Old Testament. We have the temple. We have the priesthood. We have the law. We've never eaten pork. We are clean. We have uh, kept all of the Mosaic Code. All of these things they boasted of and so many more. They had an endless list of things that they boasted in. And Paul says, not us. We don't boast in any of those things. Our only boasting is in Christ Jesus. That's all we have. Because a true believer knows that he has come to the point where he understands, or he or she understands, I have nothing of which I can offer to God. Nothing. There in my flesh dwells no good thing. I have nothing that I can contribute to my salvation. I, I'm, I have no gifts. I have no spiritual gifts that are my own making. I have no talents or abilities that have not already been given to me by God. I have nothing in me that is righteous which might commend me to God in His sight. There is nothing in me that is able to even respond to divine grace in a way that pleases God apart from His enabling. I have nothing. So what does a believer boast in? Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. He alone is my hope. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. I have nothing else to offer. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. That's all I got. All all I have to boast in is Christ. Anything else directs my attention and the attention of others to myself. That's sinful boasting. But the genuine, the true circumcision, they don't boast in their circumcision, their law-keeping, their regulations, or their requirements, or their sanctification, or their holiness, or what's seen before men. They boast in Christ and Christ alone. But the false teachers, they boasted in, they didn't boast in Christ. That's why Paul says we're the true circumcision and we boast not in things of the flesh, but we boast in those things which are of Christ. Just this last week I finished reading, uh, not finished reading, I finished a chapter in this book. I'm reading a, a little mini biography written by John Piper as part of the Swans Are Not Silent series. I encourage you to read those if you ever get a chance. They're phenomenal. This is the third in a series of four and this biography is on John Newton, William Wilberforce, and Charles Simeon. Now, John Newton is the maritime slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace after he got converted. William Wilberforce was the parliamentarian that helped uh, abolish the slave trade in England back in the 1800s, actually preceded our civil war and, and our getting rid of the slaves here. Both of them phenomenal Christian men. And Charles Simeon, I'm going to tell you, he's a fascinating guy. I didn't know anything about him till this last week when I was reading about him. I'll share more about him maybe some other time. But I ran across something that he said that was very appropriate for this. Charles Simeon said, By this then, my brethren, you may judge whether you are Christians in deed and in truth, or such in name only. For a nominal Christian is content with proving the way of salvation by a crucified Redeemer. But the true Christian loves it, delights in it, glories in it, and shudders at the very thought of glorying in anything else. Your average Christian is is content. Your nominal Christian is content with just saying, Jesus died, He died on a cross, He rose again, you need to believe in Him. But the true believer, Simeon says, loves that and delights in it and glories in it. And he is he shudders at the thought of glorying in anything else. That's the truth. That's why Paul could so boldly say in Galatians chapter 6, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world got nothing else to offer. 
Now, you don't have to go far to find Christians who are willing to boast about all kinds of things other than just Christ. We boast about things that we think we offer to God before we're even saved. We boast about things that we think we offer to God after we're saved, by which we're continually sanctified. Uh, I'm a Christian, and I don't listen to rock music. And I'm a Christian, and I don't pierce my body. And I'm a Christian, and I dress like a Christian, and I drink milk from a Christian cow, and I only read a certain Bible translation, and I make sure that every woman under my authority dresses in a skirt or a dress, and we wear head coverings, and we all come to get, uh, to get to church together with matching Bibles, and we all have matching guns, we all have a stash of gold, and we blah, 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 all these things by which you can tell outwardly that somebody's a Christian. I don't buy any of that for a minute. I'm a Christian, and we keep all the right dietary requirements, and we worship God doing this, and we bring as much of the Old Testament into our lives as we possibly can. Friends, none of those things have anything at all to do with your sanctification. Nothing at all. And yet you do not have to go far to find Christians who boast in Jesus Christ plus, and they've got a list, and I could go on with the list. Because I was there at one time, and I'm going to tell you about that in coming weeks. And we're not done with this subject. I'm going to find your pet peeve, and I'm going to stomp all over it before we're done. (laughs) I'm going to find your thing that you think is your outward display of your piety that marks you as a Christian so that everybody else sees you. And they see that I don't do this, and I don't have a TV in my house, and I don't go to movies, and I don't drink wine, and I don't eat red meat on Fridays, and I don't do this, and I don't, I don't do peanut butter. I have all these things, outward things that mark me as a believer. I'm going to find your thing. And friends, as believers, we boast in absolutely nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And there is nothing about my justification and my righteousness in the sight of God that has anything to do with anything I have ever said, ever done, or ever contributed. And there is nothing about my sanctification, my growth and holiness, that has anything to do with anything I have ever said, ever done, or ever contributed to the cross. Nothing. What can I boast in? I can't boast in Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus Sabbath keeping, Christ plus baptism, Christ plus reading this translation, going to this place, or all of my little list of requirements that I think mark me as a Christian and show the rest of the watching world just how pious, how sanctified, how holy, and how redeemed I am. I have nothing. You have nothing. It required in me, I don't want to get into too much of this, but it required in me a huge paradigm shift in my second year of Bible college before I could understand that. A huge theological paradigm shift. That's paradigm if you're from Clark Fork. A huge... Okay, come on. It's just a joke. A huge theological paradigm shift. Because friends, when I first became a believer, I would have said to you, I am saved by grace and grace alone. But I will show you how holy I am. And so you watch. And if you want to be holy like me, then I've got a list in my back pocket of the things that you need to do to be just like me. And I could have pulled them out. And I could have named them for you. Paul says we boast in what? Christ. Jesus. I have nothing else. Nothing else for my sanctification. Nothing else for my justification. Nothing else for my glorification. I have contributed, listen carefully, I have contributed nothing to my salvation. I have nothing to contribute. It is all of grace, or it is none of grace. 
Show me somebody who thinks that their sanctification, their holiness is marked by all the external things, and I will show you somebody who does not understand the saving and sanctifying grace of Christ. The third one. I've only given you two. We're running out of time. Thankfully, this third one is is um, elaborated on in far more detail in the coming verses, and we are going to get to it in more detail. Number three, not only do we worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, but we put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence means a trust or a surety or a certainty. Paul has already used the word confidence twice in this epistle. He talks about the Philippians' bold confidence in him coming to them, that their confidence would be in Christ Jesus, and that when he saw when he saw them, they would boast in glory and because of their confidence in him. Paul also said, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is confidence. It means a surety or a certainty. And Paul says we place no surety, no certainty, no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. What does he mean by flesh? Flesh is a word, sarx in the Greek. It had all kinds of different word meanings depending on the context. Sometimes it was used of a fleshly body. Sometimes it was used of just men in general. Sometimes it was used of human standards of judgment. Sometimes of sin. Sometimes of the sinful nature. Sometimes of the sinful body. Sometimes just of, of mankind in general. Sometimes of relationships. My kinsmen according to the flesh. That means I'm related to them according to the flesh. But here in this passage, the Apostle Paul has a very broad meaning for it. There's a double, sort of a double dig that he's giving here. The first one is when he says, we place no confidence in the flesh. It is obviously an allusion to circumcision. Obviously an allusion to circumcision. He has just talked about their boasting and their confidence that they place in this outward mark. And he's called them false circumcisers. And then he turns around and he says, we place no confidence in the flesh. In other words, there is a very direct allusion there. We place no confidence in anybody's outward mark in their physical skin. But then there's a second meaning, and it is this, because Paul goes on in verses 4 through 6 to list all of the things of the flesh that he might have boasted in. His pedigree, his lineage, his upbringing, his raising, his circumcision, his Abrahamic descent, his ability as a Pharisee, his zeal for the truth of God, all of these things in which a human being may boast, all of those would be the flesh. So flesh is not just an allusion to circumcision. It also refers to anything in which a human being would place their confidence for salvation or sanctification. Anything in which a human being will place their confidence for salvation or for sanctification. It's a very broad meaning. And I could give you a list. People trusting Christ plus their baptism. Christ plus their church attendance. Christ plus their giving. Christ plus their outward conformity to a set of standards that an elder or a pastor or a popular national teacher has laid out for them in nice red books with charts and diagrams and all the stuff that goes with it. It's always Christ plus something. Some outward standard. The Apostle Paul says we place no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. There is nothing that we can hold on to, nothing that we can grab on to, except Christ and Christ alone. Now this is why... I think one of the worst, most hideous doctrines that has ever crept into the church is the notion that somebody can lose their salvation. I think that is a hideous doctrine. It's disgusting to me, and I'll tell you why it's disgusting to me. If you are able to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness, and I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, 
and I'm trusting in His salvation and His cross and His work for me, and I have placed no confidence in the flesh, nothing in my ability to contribute or to continue in my salvation and my sanctification because I do not trust myself and in my flesh dwells no good thing and I have totally cast myself on Christ. If I perish after having been able to say that and do that, if I perish, it means He has failed. He is a failure. And He is a liar. Maybe He's not able to raise me up on the last day. Maybe He's not able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through faith in Him. Maybe He is not able to sufficiently save me from myself. I must need Christ and something else if I can perish. That is anathema to me. I don't need anything else but Christ. He alone is my confidence. But somebody may say, well, I trust in Christ and I trust in Christ alone, but I have to... See a problem, anybody? I have to what? Continue? Persevere? What is it that I have to do? Even my perseverance in the faith, I rest on Him for that, not myself. If it rests on you, oh, I shudder for you, my friend. You have no hope. He alone is my confidence. The notion that I can be saved and trust in Him as my Savior and still perish, I think that is such a slap in the face of divine grace. Such a a strike against the all-sufficient Savior that it is amazing to me that anybody would believe that, let alone teach it. I place no confidence in the flesh. I have nothing to boast in but Christ. And I'm trusting in Him as a Christian so completely that He must fail before I perish. He must be proved to be a liar before I will ever suffer the torments of the wrath of God for my sin. Because I have no other argument. I boast in nothing more. I have nothing else to give Him. But my confidence is in Him. Friends, Paul says in Philippians 3, we are the true circumcision. We are the true people of God. How do we know that? Because we worship God in the Spirit of God, not in the flesh. Because we boast in Christ Jesus and not in ourselves. And because our confidence is in Him and Him alone and not in our flesh, and not in anything we can contribute, not in anything we can offer. It is God, it is Christ, and it is Christ alone. And if that is where your hope is, then you are the true circumcision. You are the true people of God. And so I ask you this morning, where is your confidence and where is your hope? What are you expecting to get you past the wrath of God on Judgment Day? Your own righteousness? Your own ability? Your own perseverance, your own faith, your own something that you contribute to it, either in making you just before God or in sanctifying you before God? Or can you honestly say, I trust Christ like I would trust a parachute. And I put it on and I'm willing to jump out of the plane because I I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed unto Him against that day. He is able to save me to the uttermost because I have drawn near to God through Him. I am confident that He who began the good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's His promise to me. That's where my confidence rests. The true circumcision worships God in the Spirit, boasts in Christ Jesus, and puts no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your amazing grace. It is sweet and it's sound and it has saved wretches such as us. We are grateful that we have no other confidence, that we have nothing else to boast of. We thank You that Christ is not a failure, that He is not a liar, 
and that you will complete that which you have begun in us. We thank you also that you have moved to save us, to redeem us, to sanctify us, and to secure us. And we know that you will present us faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. And we long for that day, and we look forward to the day when we will stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not a righteousness which is ours, but a righteousness which is his through faith. We bless you, and we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.